Roscoe, can you hear me? (laughs) This is Gary and Roscoe welcoming you to another episode of Booth One, celebrating the art of lively conversation. We're back to the way we were, if memory serves correctly, with just Roscoe and I sharing our Booth One experiences and what's happening in the world of performing arts and popular culture. There's some hints uh, about something we're going to talk about there and the things that I was uh, just saying. You're if you're so, clever you're enough so to get droll, the references. Gary. Yeah, yes. thank you very much. Uh, we want to address a series. <laughs> we want to address a series of items today that have been crowding our inbox, plus a few new topical experiences we've had recently. Roscoe, I've been meaning to mention this to you. Did I tell you a few weeks ago that we went to Billy Lawless's new restaurant? You remember Billy Lawless? Yes, who we talked yes, to a yes. Taste of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Well, he's opened a new place called Cota de Volpe, and we were lucky enough to get our own booth one experience by being invited to a friends and family opening night. Have you ever been to one of these things? Yeah, you got a free meal. <laughs> totally free. <laughs> free cocktails beforehand, free dessert, free everything. And all you had to do was sort of give your feedback and kind of be nice to the wait staff. Yeah. Uh, I highly recommend it. <laughs> it's, it's one of those great experiences. It's an awesome, awesome place. Roscoe, it's not far from your neighborhood, I guess, in Wrigleyville. You go to the music box very often, don't you? It'd be a good place to have a meal before a music box show. I don't go to the music box as much as I used to. No, I don't. No. It's don't kind you? of cruddy now. They do this weird... Have you been to the music box? I have, yeah. They do something creepy where they blind you with lighting when you walk in so that you can't see how much it's deteriorated. Oh, dear God. Or, or perhaps the rats scampering across your feet. <laughs> That's how they used to do it in discos with all the lights yes. in your eyes so you couldn't yes. tell how shabby yes. and, the place yes. really was. And I'm going to bridge here. Joe Stone Crab... Yeah, I went to their soft opening many years ago, a friends and family opening, and I was seated at a table with this elderly couple whose claim to fame is that they had they owned and ran Faces. Faces was the big discotheque in Chicago in the '70s. It was the Studio 54 of of Chicago. Yeah, so they had many stories. They were quite entertaining. And the food was good, and I didn't have to pay for it, which is always my favorite part. I'm sorry the music box has become shabby. What's the last thing you saw there? I think you told us. Did you go to West Side Story or something? <laughs> yes, because I'm so I'm just so trendy. When they, when they did The Hateful Eight, was it The Hateful Eight, the Tarantino movie? Yeah, in 70 millimeter. Yes, when they did showed The Hateful Eight, they put in a special screen to show it in 70 millimeter. And then they left this gigantic screen up for a few weeks and showed a number of different films in 70 millimeter. I went to West Side Story. I could barely get a seat. The theater was packed on a, a Monday night in January, and it was thrilling. But very cool to see it in very original cool. uh, widescreen format, yes. for sure. I'm also making a note. Stop using the word thrilling to describe everything. <laughs> <laughs> I was called on this. <laughs> <laughs> That voice that you heard uh, uh, in the background just uh, recently, uh, as Roscoe was telling his uh, story, was our newest associate. Uh, Her name is Michelle Houle. Michelle is going to be helping us with a lot of things, including marketing and social media and research and all kinds of stuff. So she's sitting in on the podcast today. We might have a occasion to ask you a question or two, but welcome to the team, Michelle. Thank you. (laughs) It's awfully nice to have you here. I want to get to something that, before I forget, because you just did this uh, earlier this week and you mentioned that you were going on our last podcast, you went to revisit Warpaint. I did. Let's hear about Warpaint Redux. Here was the thrilling thing that happened. Inexplicably, I went with a group of people in rows one and two, front and center, in in front of the stage. And this, again, proves my point. Where you sit really does matter. I'm always obsessed with where I'm going to sit. Seeing the, I could see the pores on their faces. Let me say this, if they had pores... That Christine Ebersol is in very good care of her skin. Oh, she's over the she's years. got skin like porcelain. Yes, my initial review is unchanged. It's a show about a not very interesting topic. It's about two women who are upset because they can't. Their rivalries in the cosmetics industry, and it's all about money. So there's nothing else at stake. One just wants to be more famous than the other. I think there are. 14 songs in each act. 
Right. So you're nearly, they nearly sing you to death. It's like a double album. Yeah. It's going to be a double, it's going <laughs> to be, gonna be a, a double, double show. It's going to be a double show CD. album, yeah. But being that close, you could see Patty Lapone does do that thing where she, she has to sing out of the side of her mouth and, and her lips tremble and her whole neck shakes. Mm-hmm. But they are such pros. And to hear them blended together and to be that close where you're hearing their naked voice without the sound system, uh, very exciting. Although my friend turned to me at one point in the show and said, why don't they just do a musical version of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? Because that would be fantastic. (laughs) That would be perfect casting. And at least the two women would then be able to interact with each other. Because in this one, as as we've told our listeners, they they supposedly never met until one time very late in their lives by accident. When they're on stage together, they're not really ever interacting together. Yes, and I must retract something I said earlier. In fact, they never did meet. So the final scene is a fantasy. So that, well, if they never met, and you made that up, make up the whole show. Just have them meet and have cat fights, you know, every five minutes. That would have been more interesting. (laughs) Could you tell... On a second viewing, could you tell if they'd done any work on the show, if anything was different? I don't think they had changed anything with the show, but I will tell you they have honed their performances. They know how to get every laugh, how to land every line. Christine Ebersole had a had a double take and a hold that went on for about five minutes, and, and she got 15 separate laughs. You know, we we laughed because of what she was doing. You know, the laugh just kept building and building and building. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We just you know, and she didn't move, and the audience was crazy. The audience loved the show. Numerous ovations throughout the show. You know, people felt that they were at a huge hit show. This show will not run in its shape in New York. Ben Brantley will stay up nights thinking about how he can write about this as cruelly as possible again. As we said last time, there's no plan for a New York show right this minute. At least I haven't heard anything. I haven't heard them booking a theater yet. The man I sat next to had seen the show earlier. Uh, He was an invited seat filler at an earlier performance because they were having backers in the audience. They wanted to make sure they had a sold out house. And this was a little amusing. The man sits down, turns to me, puts out his hand and says, Ross! I've never seen him before. So I said, hello. And he said, and you are? And I said, Ross. And he said, no, I was introducing myself. I'm Ross. (laughs) 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 But it was like an Abbott and Costello routine. Ross? Ross? No, I'm Ross. Oh, you're Ross. Oh, okay. Ross the seat filler. Yes. And I said, are you really a Roscoe? And he wasn't. Just a Ross. Just a Ross. There aren't a lot of Roscoes around. It's my real name, by the way. I didn't make it up. He's he's telling you, Michelle, that that's his real name, and we're not we're not. Oh, pretending. I guess that didn't work if you're just listening to this. And if you are just listening to this, I, well, hopefully you have listened to shows in the past, and we've talked about the circus quite a lot in many of our podcasts. Um, we've had circus performers on the show. We've had circus directors on the show. We've talked about elephants on the show. We've talked about my experience, yes. my solo experience in my in my trench coat going to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus by myself. By why? I don't know why, but uh, I just had to go uh, because I wanted to see the elephants for the last time. Well, I've been meaning to mention this for a couple of podcasts now, and it really hasn't ever kind of come up. Uh, Ringling Brothers has finally mounted their most recent touring show, and this is the first one in 134 years that will not feature uh, any elephants. The show is called Out of This World, and it's got a sort of a science fiction-like theme to it. Lots of acrobats, lots of laser shooting through the air. There's a sort of a plot where uh, some of the circus performers have been kidnapped by this evil villain, this evil space villain, and taken to a planet. So much of the show is about a journey through time and space to find these acts, and every time they find one, 
it's an excuse for the act to perform. But unfortunately, there are no elephants. Now, someone uh, was interviewed after the show and said it didn't feel like the same old circus that comes every year. And we really liked that, said Amber Ford in Fresno, California. A reporter baited her. Did she find anything missing from the experience? Something strongly associated with the circus, perhaps? And she said, why, yes, there were no acrobats on trampolines. <laughs> well, the show does indeed go on. By all reviews that I've read, and uh, I think I'm going to go see it when it comes here to the United Center, it sounds like a really, really great show, but again, they've retired the circus elephants. Uh, small, will I ever intimate. get to see an elephant perform again? We could go to the elephant sanctuary in Tennessee and, and throw peanuts up in the air and see if they'll <laughs> Do they see let if they'll people go for in there. No, unfortunately, I think we could pretend we're researching something though. Yes, and I say think we that's go. that like people don't even know where that is because they don't want trouble. They don't want people showing up and bothering their elephants with a capital T, <laughs> and that rhymes with P. And that stands for. Pachyderm. Pachyderm. <laughs> that was good. Hey, we had a wonderful time last episode uh, with uh, our friends uh, from Bahalia, Mississippi. It's a beautiful, beautiful play. Uh, hopefully you have listened to episode 40 and the uh, playwright Evan Linder and the director Tyrone Phillips. We sent our brand new employee to Bahalia the other day. She's also uh, a budding playwright and a uh, improv comedy trainee, although I don't know if you've actually gotten to perform any improv yet. Would you like to do some here right now? <laughs> of course. In, uh, <laughs> insane asylum. Uh, <laughs> couple getting divorced. Go. <laughs> I don't know how that works. Let's talk Bahalia just for a few minutes here. How did you enjoy your experience at the play? I loved it. I went with um, a friend of mine from college who was also a playwriting major, and it was really great to see. Um, it's always really great to see, like, new work. Did you find it to be one of the best new works you've seen in quite some yes, time? Yes, it almost felt like a classic. It almost felt like it had been a play that had been around for a few years. Well, you know, Tyrone, the director, calls it a future classic. A future classic. He, he dubbed it that when we were uh, on the air with him. What did you like most about the experience? Was it the emotional journey? Was it the... It felt very, like, visceral. Yeah. It certainly held your attention. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've been to a, a gajillion plays and pieces that my mind starts to wander going... Gee, I wonder how they got those lighting instruments hung up so high, or why is this scene in blue and not in red or green? And I never, for one single second, was taken out of the experience. Did you feel that as well, Michelle? Yes, exactly. Yep. And, and that's always the perfect word for Chicago theater, visceral. It was Chicago theater at its, at its best. It's, it's the perfect example of Chicago theater. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Michelle. We'll, we'll have plenty of opportunities to go to other Booth One experiences. Why is this Booth One? Well, because the play has been sold out for the last three weeks, and how we managed to get you a ticket, we won't say, but <laughs> let me just say that we are Booth One. We are Booth One. <laughs> okay, now I really have to get down to what... I, I wanted to hear from you about today, Roscoe, though your war paint uh, uh, revisited was thrilling. I hate to say thrilling. Your war paint revisited was very interesting and, a, and an excellent follow-up. See how useful the word thrilling is? I do. It, it says so much with just one little word. I'm, I've, got, I've got a little clicker here like they use when they count people who go into the Walmart you know, at Christmas, <laughs> and I'm going to click it off each time you say thrilling. Let's try that technique now. Yes. Barbara Streisand. Amazing. <laughs> Darn. I was hoping for the TH word. You went to the United Center to see Barbara Streisand on her nine-city tour uh, the other night. Uh, I want to hear about that experience, and I want to hear what you thought of her. I know you're chomping at the bit. How I'm still not over it. I still have not recovered. One of the things that happened is I had access, because this is booth one, to VIP seats. And how this works is you put in your order and you explain why you were a VIP person, and then they prioritize where they will seat you. So if Oprah is going, maybe she gets the better seats than you do. So I didn't know where I was going to be sitting until I got there and picked up my tickets. Seventh row, center, on the floor, in front of the stage. I could see the whites of her eyes. I've seen her twice before from seats that weren't quite as good. 
What was exciting about the show this time? She was having a great time. It wasn't over. The last show was spectacle. 70-piece orchestra, sets, all kinds of guest stars, a huge choir at the end of the show. This is her with a small band, backup singers. You didn't even notice the set. The set was invisible. They did do a lot of projections, though, which were very interesting. It's her in a microphone and a spotlight for the most part. For a 74-year-old woman, she is an amazing voice. With the career that she has had, she could have sung for 12 hours and not covered everything. She did a number of songs that she has not done in years. She told a funny story about hearing all all roads lead to Liza. (laughs) She was at a benefit concert and Liza Minnelli sang a song that was unfamiliar to Barbara Streisand. And Barbara said, Liza, I love that song. Where did it come from? And she said, actually, you sang it in Funny Lady. (laughs) (laughs) And she just hadn't remembered doing it. I'm still shaking with excitement. I have seen everyone. I saw Hamilton. Hamilton stayed with me for a few days. I have been practically shaking with excitement since I saw this show. From what, I, from what I've read, uh, it's a, a much more intimate experience than some of her other tours have been. And she does talk a lot to the audience. She explains things about the song she's going to sing or the song she just sang or something about her life. Were those sort of dialogue intervals, were those really interesting? Were you, was it just it's thrilling? Fascinating. Do you know, I, our, our, Click. our friend may not know this. I just said thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's Barbara's uh, fourth or fifth album is Pe- the album People. Do you know those? Are you a Barbara my, my Streisand? My mom is a big Barbara Streisand okay. fan. So People was had a famous cover because you don't see her face. She's standing at the Pacific Ocean on a beach, and you see her from behind. And what she told us is that that photo shoot was done while she was in Chicago singing at Mr. Kelly's, it's Lake Michigan. She's at the Oak Street Beach. She did something, something happened to her that was unprecedented at the time. Her manager signed her with Columbia and said, here's the deal. She's going to have complete artistic control over her albums, from the titles to the song she sings to the cover art. They wanted to entitle her debut album, Streisand, Sweet and Saucy. And she said it sounded like Chinese food. <laughs> and I said, no. And that's one of the reasons probably she's had such a great career is she didn't have to kowtow to anyone. or She's been with the same record label her entire career. I will close the Streisand sequence with this. The end of the show was a full-length version of Don't Rain on My Parade with the movie with that same number projected behind her on a gigantic screen, Don't Rain on My Parade, followed by Happy Days Are Here Again, and a shout-out to, and she said, this is her longevity, she said, I've sung this for three presidents, President Clinton, Lyndon Johnson, and John F. Kennedy. You know, this, her career goes, John F. Kennedy has been dead for more than 50 years, and she was singing at the White House then. She said, I hope to sing this for another Clinton. So she launches into Happy Days Are Here Again. Everyone's beside themselves. I'm smelling salts are being administered to me. <laughs> <laughs> then she sings People, which was thrilling. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Click. Damn it. Almost got through the whole thing. I almost got through the whole thing. Well, I happen, to have, are, I happen to have the set list okay, in do, front do, of me. Show the last three numbers. Don't Rain on My Parade, Happy she Days did, Are Here uh, Again. She did Don't Rain on My Parade, People, People, and Happy Days Are Here Again. And then there was an encore at which she did a song called I Didn't Know What Time It Was. What was interesting, the people all around me, people for, had flown in from Texas to see the show or driven three hours from mm. Iowa paid a fortune to see the show. One of the things on the set list really intrigued me, and it intrigued me because it's very near and dear to both oh, of I our know hearts. Where, yes. She sang Who Can I Turn To from the uh, Roar of the Grease Paint and the Smell of the Crowd by Anthony Newley and Leslie Bercuse. But apparently she had Anthony Newley on the screen behind her, so they were singing a duet. Is that true? Yes. And was it... Our very, very favorite footage of Anthony Newley on the Ed Sullivan show. It is the same clip that you and I have watched a thousand times. At least a thousand times. And how they cleaned this up is beyond me. This is a a 
TV clip that's 60 years old and how they got it to sound like it was digitally recorded last week is beyond me. Did, when uh, that although, came up, did you just... Did you just ha- I, I, knew, have, I knew it was going to happen and uh, I was almost apoplectic. I want to ask one more question about Wait, uh, the, the evening. Okay. The intermission had a, a, a mentalist. Is that true? There was a mentalist named uh, Lior Souchard? Why he was in the part of the show, I don't know. He, he, he added 10 more minutes of stage time. I, I love mentalists, and I was right in the front so I could see it, and they randomly picked people in the audience, and he guessed their names, he guessed the names of their wives, and, and you could tell that these people were not set up. Maybe they were. Well. Maybe they were good actors. <laughs> but they seemed to be flabbergasted by what he was able sure, to do. Sure, sure. And, and I'm sure if you had not been sitting, in, if you were in third section in the, the back, it would have been completely ridiculous and you wouldn't have understood anything that had happened. And wh- while, while that was happening, she was off in her dressing room eating pizza. Yes, that was her conceit. That her, <laughs> she had a- ordered a Chicago deep dish pizza and the, the pizza delivery man didn't have the right pass to get backstage. She also looked fantastic. She had a great head of hair. Wow. I hope it wasn't a wig. I don't think it... it we well, she's, known. she's the only, I believe, recording artist who've, who's released a studio album in seven decades, I believe. Well, she's had six num- She's had uh, a number one album in each of six decades. That's that's amazing. Yeah, and she's about to release something else, which is uh, Broadway duets with R- famous right. people. She put a lot of work into the show. She had to relearn a number of songs she hasn't done in years. It's a pretty elaborate production. She's only doing ten performances. Nine cities. Yeah. She's performing twice in Brooklyn. At the Barclays Center. Last night was her first one. Wow. And and that's it. And that's it. And she's promoting this album. So when she opened in Los Angeles, two or three of the people who appeared on the album with her came out on stage to sing. As as they did at the Barclays Center last night. Who? Um, Jamie Foxx came out Mm. and sang with her. Climb Every Mountain. Climb Every Mountain. That's correct. Which was the only number that she cut from her set list Mm. here in Chicago. Anybody else? Meryl Streep, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> it was not Meryl Streep <laughs> or Liza Minnelli. And, and if you'd been there, if Liza had walked out, I, I don't think we'd be speaking today because no. your head would have really certainly I, exploded. I'd still be strapped down at the Menninger Clinic. You'd never be able to say <laughs> thrilling again because it would just Wait, would not add up. Was it a good review in the New York Times? Uh, quite a good review. And uh, I, I want to just touch on one aspect of a profile that Ben Brantley in the New York Times wrote last Sunday, where she's quoted as saying, he went out to her house in Los Angeles, and it's sort of an interesting article. I didn't think it was all that um, insightful, but she said she's doing this tour because there's a painting she wants. That's right. (laughs) Some Matisse or something. So I said, how many cities do I have to do to get this piece? That's why why I'm doing this podcast, because I'm I'm hoping to afford something off the dollar menu at McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) See something on the shelf at Goodwill, did you, that you really, really, really have to have? Well, speaking of long in the tooth, and I know that this is not the greatest of segues, but I wanted to ask you, do you, do you happen to know what the longest lived vertebrate on Earth is? A tiger shark. Well, <laughs> you're very, very close. Uh, it's been found that Greenland sharks, a Greenland, Greenland shark. shark, will live an average of at least 272 years, ranking it as the longest lived vertebrate on Earth. This is a good and shark up, story, and not a four, bad shark and story. And up to 400 years. And they more. may live beyond 400 years. And they don't years. reach their sexual maturity until they're 150, so there's still hope for me. And, and they can grow up to 21 <laughs> feet long and 2,000 pounds. And they're, this is an interesting fact. They are blind due to the many parasites crowding their eyes. And these sharks are said to have an impeccable sense of smell which they make ample use of when they hunt, no doubt. So uh, I wouldn't wear that Old Spice aftershave if you're going <laughs> swimming in Greenland, Roscoe, because the Greenland sharks will, will find you. But I, I was just amazed. I always thought that, you know, like the humpback whale was the longest-lived creature, but they say that they... Or tortoises, green... tortoises, terrapins. They can live to be 275. Yeah, but 400 years old? They would have been around before America was here. The 1600s. Wasn't that an intelligent insight? (laughs) 
Hey, earlier this summer, Roscoe, when you were there for these, I was asked to deliver a presentation for the Grant Park Music Festival's Cole Porter Celebration, and we've condensed a portion of that for your listening pleasure. Along with some biographical facts and fun Porter trivia, I also have as my guests the musical director and conductor Kevin Stites, along with two of the singing stars of the show, Kathy Voidko and Ben Crawford. Let's now take you over to the Pritzker Pavilion in beautiful Millennium Park. Taxi! Sophisticated, urbane, witty, naughty, playful, elegant, rhythmic, sexy, subversive, impish, audacious, unforgettable, but enough about us. I'm talking, of course, about Mr. Cole Porter and his music and his lyrics, just a few of the adjectives that might describe them. For much of the 1920s and through the mid-1930s, Cole Porter was probably the most famous and recognizable songwriter and theater composer in the world. You couldn't go to any continent, including Antarctica, where they did not know at least one Cole Porter song. Mr. Porter was born in Peru, Indiana on June 9, 1891. So this year we mark the 125th anniversary of that event. How fitting then that the Grand Park Music Festival has chosen as part of their free programming this outdoor season to present tonight's Cole Porter celebration. Here to discuss Mr. Porter's music and lyrics in greater detail and to talk about the celebration program in specific tonight is our guest conductor and musical director, Mr. Kevin Stites. And joining Kevin and me is Broadway veteran Kathy Voidko and baritone Ben Crawford. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Though Cole Porter had been writing songs for musical reviews in college at Yale in Europe and the United States for many years, including songs just for fun for his rich socialite friends, his first Broadway success didn't come until 1928 with a show called Paris, named after his beloved adopted city where he and his wife Linda lived throughout the 20s and 30s. His breakthrough blockbuster show was Anything Goes in 1934, starring Ethel Merman and featuring a young Vivian Vance. Anybody remember who Vivian Vance is? Oh, fantastic. That show ran an astounding 420 performances. Doesn't sound like a lot now in the age of Cats and Hamilton, but 420 performances was pretty good. Some of the songs from that show that they're performing tonight are I Get a Kick Out of You, You're the Top, All Through the Night, and Blow Gabriel Blow. Kevin, let me start with you. What is it about a Cole Porter lyric that makes them so memorable? What did he do? Cole Porter was so sophisticated and so smart and used plays on words in a Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love, a song that you'll hear in tonight's concert. You're going to hear crazy plays on words that are not pushes. They're not lyric pushes. Let's, let's being somebody from a country of Latvia in Let's Do It. That sort of simile is just so intelligent and it permeates all of his lyrics. We've got two songs that are paired together that are absolute genius words, not in the Stephen Sondheim sort of way where you have to think twice and you maybe have to go back a second time. You sort of get it the first time with Cole Porter. It was a lot earlier, too. The variety that he can come up with. There's a a pairing of songs later in the concert that are Cole Porter at, at his simplest. I love Paris in the springtime. I love Paris in the fall. Nothing subversive there. So it's the, the diversity and the, the wide variety that he can bring to the lyric writing, along with music that perfectly fits the lyric. You can't take a lyric of Cole Porter's and just pop it onto another set of music. You can, however, take a song from one show of Cole Porter's and possibly pop it into another one. That's been done several times in Revival. The lyrics and the music are so well matched. I couldn't agree more. A few words about Anything Goes, because I know you like a little trivia about shows. Some of the songs, as Kevin mentioned for his scores, were ones that he had written previously and didn't work out, and he'd throw them in a trunk for possible later recycling. I Get a Kick Out of You, for instance, had previously been written for an unproduced musical called Stardust in 1931. You know, inserting songs with slightly altered lyrics to fit the plot of a new show was not unusual in 1934, 
Uh, originally titled Hard to Get and then titled Bon Voyage, Anything Goes had a bit of a rough start. The initial plot proposed was that of a pleasure ship wrecked at sea with several screwball characters aboard. As you may uh, recall in the 30s, they weren't big on plot line. Everybody uh, was rich, development, too. And everybody, everybody was, was rich. rich. <laughs> everybody had money. However, in September of 34, that same year that the show was about to open, a real pleasure ship called the Morro Castle was wrecked off the New Jersey coast. The script had to be very hastily rewritten, and they wrote it as a transatlantic liner. Porter's score caught the essence of the 1930s and laid bare many of the foibles and inconsistencies of the period, but always with wit and imagination. Ben, I want to ask you about a song that you sing from Anything Goes all through the night. One of the great Torch songs ever. I, I've often wanted to be a better singer than I am. In fact, I'd like to be a singer. I heard Ben's performance last night, and if I were forced to choose a voice that I would like to have, yours would probably be it, wow. without question. Thank How do you, you feel about singing that song? You're a, you're a Broadway veteran. You've been in Les Miserables. You played Shrek in Shrek the Musical. You were in On the 20th Century with Kristen Chenoweth. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Peter Gallagher. Uh, and Kevin so, Stites. And, and Kevin Stites was in that show? No, well, I, I wasn't love Kevin in Stites. It. I was down there. Uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw your arms waving. Yeah, exactly. What's it like to sing a Cole Porter tune from the 30s? How do you feel about that song? Number one, like what Kevin was saying, I mean, the way he writes is, is so beautiful. And the, one thing that's great about that song is the legato melody and how everything is so um, connected yet, yet separated and kind of stretched, I guess is a good way to put it. The way that Cole Porter writes, one, one thing I love about that song is it, it's such a heightened lyric, and so you have to keep looking, heightened in the sense of you, you have to kind of break it down. And what exactly are you saying? And essentially that song is saying, when I, when I go to sleep, I, I think of you in my dreams, essentially. And so uh, what I love about Cole Porter's music is, is like I said, that, that language is so heightened, and you break it down, and it comes from just essentially a, a very simple idea or thought, but he just makes it lavish, and he just, he just kind of pours on the eloquence. Were there any lyrics that you had to alter in tonight's program that were original lyrics that he wrote in his subversive stage? Well, there we were. Change? Well, there really? were. Back in the 30s, 20s, 30s, late 20s, early uh, 30s and 40s, you could get away with more radically charged, maybe incorrectness with lyrics, and there was a lyric in, well, did you ever, that uh, we have two guys singing in this production that referred to a young lady leaving town. Have you heard that she left town? And I'm not gonna do the rhyme, but, and she came back with a child and the child was black, which is incredibly inappropriate. So we've changed it. We're not doing it. We also, uh, topically, there was a, a lyric in, we're doing Friendship, the song Friendship, which, sort of made its trip from one show to another. I think it ended up in Dewberry Was a Lady, something like that, but I, it's been integrated into Anything Goes over the years as well, where there was t two people talking about being friends, but if you ever stick a gun to my head, and, and after Orlando and the horrible tragedies we've had with guns, we thought it best just to maybe take that one away too. But things were a lot more carefree then. But he was so prolific that there are 700 oh, yeah. verses of just about every song. <laughs> yeah, we, in Let's Do It, when we were looking for other verses and Well Did You Ever, the published score for this concert came with like seven refrains. Choose one, choose three, choose how many ever you want to do. So we, it was easy to just take two, you know, the verse from this and the chorus from that and plug it together. You can't do that with Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> And you sort of can't do that with Oscar Hammerstein. It's very interesting. And it's been said that Porter invented dozens of unrepeatable lyrics uh, to Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love yep. for his social circle of friends at parties and gatherings. Well, brush up your Shakespeare. So, and from okay, Kiss Me, exactly. Kate, there was, there was a lyric discrepancy in the music we were sent. And I went online and I thought, well, let's find the original brush up your Shakespeare. The great number that the two gangsters do in you know, try to be unsophisticated, and they kept trying to bring up Shakespeare plays, and I couldn't find one set of lyrics that matched the other. Not one. The order was different. Everything about that. So I'm like, well, we'll just make up. We'll just do what we want to do, because that's what I think they did. He was famous for 
being very meticulous with his lyrics, he'd sit down with sharpened pencils and a pad of paper and several rhyming dictionaries. He was very, very meticulous and a very, very hard worker. Kathy, I was watching rehearsal today and I noticed a lot of smiles and happiness up on stage between you and your other performers. Not so much from you, Kevin. Your back was to me and it was kind of Oh, warm. I was smiling the whole time. <laughs> Does singing a Cole Porter tune naturally do, do that to you? Absolutely, and so seldom in a duet are there the plays on words that are clever and relatable to the, your, your acting partner on stage. And, and I'm so lucky that we have Hugh Panero and Ben Crawford as the gentleman and Karen Mason. And Kevin has very kindly let us all sing to each other. It's two guys singing, two girls singing, we sing in quartets. And as Gary said, it is absolutely a pleasure because the, the lyrics are fun, the tunes are fun, and the action is fun, <laughs> so yes. I asked the festival to choose these four singers because they are great, great vocalists, but that's just 50% of the ball game with Cole Porter. Maybe 40% of the ball game. These people can sing, but they also, I think you'll find, you'll see that they have an instant connection with, with, with each other, with the material, thus with you all as audience members. Is he just so darn fun to sing. He is. He really is. And I think one thing that attributes to that for us is uh, me along with the other three performers. I think we have a lot of fun together. And so I think that even accentuates more about what Cole has to say and write. And like I said, once you get it down, once you, once you have the lyrics down with those melodies, it is just a kick to sing. Because you look so brilliantly witty while you're singing it. So uh, <laughs> it, it certainly, uh, it certainly helps us He does try out. to make the singer look sophisticated and urbane, yeah. doesn't he? I mean, I mean, you imagine, I imagine him writing these and playing these songs for his friends and they're all these, you know, socialites with their champagne in their hands. Oh, it's so witty, Cole. You know, I mean, it, it, it's such witty, brilliant lyrics that once they're down, you, you really do have to kind of crack a smile all the time singing it. You mentioned a couple of songs a few minutes ago and, and a show called Dewberry Was a Lady. This is from 1939, a vehicle for Ethel Merman and Burt Lahr. Burt Lahr was just coming off finishing post-production on The Wizard of Oz. And the fresh-faced Betty Grable was part of the supporting cast. Friendship is a song in the show. Friendship precursors a song from Gypsy called Together Wherever We Go. Many of you have probably heard that. Written by Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim. Almost two decades later, there's a story about Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim being brought over to Cole Porter's lavish apartments at the Waldorf Astoria Towers by Ethel Merman in order to cheer him up in the late 50s. At this point, Cole Porter had lost his right leg due to amputation from a horse accident that he'd had 20 years ago and it had bothered him ever since but finally the infection got too much so they came over to play some songs from Gypsy to entertain them and to cheer him up and they played together and when they got to the lyric no fits no fights no feuds and no egos amigos it said that Porter gasped in surprise delight it's high praise from the master of the clever turn of phrase and Sondheim has said it's one of the highlights of his career can ben, you imagine I, that room yeah, sorry, can absolutely. you imagine that room that room had in it Julie Stein Cole Porter and Stephen Sondheim that's just a room I would have liked to have been in for just about five minutes. And a baby grand piano. Yeah, come on. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore <laughs> like that. Jason Robert Brown doesn't go in. Sondheim can be viewed as a natural inheritor of the great lyricists, including Cole Porter. In fact, Four Songs and Follies pay direct tribute to Porter's style of musical comedy and sophistication. Ah, Paris, Broadway Baby even, Can That Boy Foxtrot, which was cut from the show before it appeared on Broadway, Who's That Woman? They had an ostentatious verbal dexterity to them. Kathy, we, we, Kevin said something about how maybe 40% of Cole Porter is the singing, the actual melody. Let me ask you this. I should have maybe not said the 40% part. Well, he's not particularly <laughs> I, mean, I don't know known. what you're trying to say, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. He's not particularly known as the most challenging vocal composer. But... Um, preferring instead simpler, easily recalled, and sung melodies. Remember, at that point, most of the popular songs of the day were actually stolen from Broadway shows. In fact, Broadway composers would write hoping they would have a hit or two so that they could sell sheet music and records and, and 
as you know, Cole Porter sold a lot of these. What do you find the most challenging, Kathy, singing a Porter tune? I need to preface it by Kathy is singing possibly the most difficult Cole Porter song in all of the Cole Porter canon, (laughs) just technically to execute. She's singing So In Love from Kiss Me Kate. When you listen to that this evening, there's one sentence for eight bars. It is so stretched out. I'll let her speak to this when she came to my living room and sang it for the first time. I nearly said, Kevin, I'm going to need oxygen <laughs> if I'm singing this song correctly. <laughs> um, but he, he, Kevin is a brilliant music director and told me where I actually could get away with breathing, and so I, I, I'm not going to pass out before you. I don't remember you breathing during that song. <laughs> uh, but you know what I find actually trickier is a revolutionary song of his called Begin the Begin. That's actually musically really challenging. It's deceptively challenging because it's sort of a lovely lilting melody. But as a singer, that's actually really tricky. It's not your typical ABA rhyme scheme or set up as far as melodically. It keeps changing. And so it keeps you on your... Uh, singer toes as well, just as a musician. <laughs> and if any music theaters or music theory scholarists out there, Begin the Begin uses a, a major technique that Cole Porter does is doing part of the chorus of a song in a minor key. And it's beautiful and it's stunning and it's lovely. And then the next time around, suddenly it's in the major. Not the relative major, the major of the key he started in. So if it's in C minor, it just goes to C major and the harmony goes to all of a sudden. And it, it's not so easy. No. That's something that Porter did an awful lot. Begin to Begin is one, I Love Paris, So in Love, Too Darn Hot. They all juxtapose uh, minor and major keys, and suddenly he switches. Does that elicit in the audience um, a sense of mystery, a sense of longing, a sense of love? What, what musically does that do to a listener? Well, minor is always associated, I shouldn't say always, is often associated with sad or dark or, or sort of within, and then when he takes that same darn melody and puts a major third underneath it, it's sort of like you're released. And the, the feeling is released, the emotion is released. The melody seems different, even though it's exactly the same. He it, takes bittersweet and makes it heartbreaking. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's as if he puts in, internal modulations, which you do in fancy musicals when you want to make your number build. You modulate to a new key, but he doesn't always change keys. He just, he just changed, changes from ma- uh, minor to major. But like Gary just pointed out the four songs that you will hear tonight, and you'll notice it. I Love Paris, blatant dead on, same key, oh, now D major. And the whole, it sounds like you've reached a, like a new plane of existence, and he just makes it be one flat in the key signature to two, char- to two sharps. I Love Paris is one of my favorite Cole Porter songs. It's from a musical called Can Can, which was also made into a movie. Can Can from 1953. Ran a long time on Broadway, almost 900 performances on Broadway at the same time during Can Can. And remember, this is very, very late in Cole Porter's career. Playing at the same time, Guys and Dolls, South Pacific, The King and I, Wonderful Town, and a revival of Porgy and Bess all on stage at the same time. That was a rough time, wasn't it? (laughs) Those were the days. Yeah. Speaking of Begin the Begin, uh, that is from a show called Jubilee, uh, one of his big hits, which no one ever does anymore. No one's ever heard of. It's from 1935. Written during a voyage to the South Seas and around the world. Yes, Cole Porter had a little bit of money. He could do that. He took this trip with his friend and co-writer on the show, Moss Hart. One another song in the show is just one of those things. Uh, a distinctly South Seas melody, and I'm thinking again of Begin to Begin. There's jungle drums and temple gongs, and you hear clinker cymbals in the orchestra, all confirm the origin of it being a sort of a South Seas type of song. Porter imagined the title, Begin to Begin, while watching a native dance in Paris in in the mid-twenties where he lived. Later on his cruise to New Guinea, he heard the first bars of a dance and the two seemed to marry. Remember I said earlier that he would have ideas in a trunk and drag them out when he needed them. Well, he found a tune that fit perfectly with this title, so we recycled the song. Uh, Artie Shaw, the great band leader, uh, made a recording with a Latin beat to a swing time, and made the song famous, very famous in 1938, and it may be still, according to some records, the single most popular recording ever made. 
What, what influences, Kevin, do you think that Cole Porter used to create his style of music and lyrics? For instance, how much does the music and especially the lyrics of Gilbert and Sullivan come into play during his development? Well, the, the tight lyrics, I call them, of Cole Porter, the ones that are all sorted out and organized, even though they don't see, uh, seem like it. Kathy, what would you... There's lots of that in this show. Um, do you mean when there's internal rhyme schemes? Internal rhyme schemes that are very, very sophisticated. And, and it's, again, Gilbert and Sullivan, not a lot of poor people in those musicals or in those operettas. Not a lot of poor in the Cole Porter shows either. Yeah, uh, with, but, but with his lyrics, he seemed to be reaching a broader audience because it wasn't just highbrow. He also wanted to get the lowest common denominator and have a good laugh. <laughs> right. From a privileged point of view, even though he was from Peru, Indiana. So <laughs> local boy does good. The Gilbert and Sullivan thing, I just think the cleverness of rhyme, the, the, the double entendre. Well, not as much double entendre even. In, not not in very Gilbert much in Gilbert and Sullivan. So, no, you can help Pretty me along right out there. I I, it's... It's more just, I think, the class structure. Gilbert was never as interesting in concept or surprising in his progression of where the lyrics would go. Have you done much Gilbert and Sullivan? Sadly, no. Really? Only in college. I haven't done any Oh, we're going to have to get you cast in something. I, I, well, if you're hiring, I'm you'd be available. Great in, you'd be great in um. HMS <laughs> Cole Porter's not known for his choral music. One of the numbers that I found that was so surprising and had me toe-tapping and almost cheering in my seat at rehearsal was that you used the chorus to do Brush Up Your Shakespeare. Yeah, it's um, interesting. If you know the song Brush Up Your Shakespeare, as we talked about earlier, two gangsters and Kiss Me Kate sing it, and we found an arrangement, a concert, I call it a concerted arrangement, very fancy, for a four-part men's choir. And I thought, oh, this may be old-fashioned. Oh, this may not work. I'm not sure that it will be funny if you don't have two guys sort of incongruously in a show that shouldn't be there sing a song with, about the titles of William Shakespeare. Yet, I'm happy to hear you liked it, Gary, because apparently it must have worked. It and, worked uh, tremendously well. I, I, think, I didn't want to spoil it for you all. But. Um, and by the way, this is possibly the best chorus in the United States. In I, fact, I at rehearsal, the soloist forgot to sing because we were just listening to the chorus. Yeah, they we're, just, Oh, God, we're supposed to be yeah, singing. I'm like, come on, come on, sing. Pretty much the whole second half of tonight's program is selections from Kiss Me, Kate, a 1948 show, which is, according to theater historians, probably his best musical. Of course, in 48, it came at a time when the musical theater form had already begun to evolve into something more character-driven and story-driven. This is some about five years after Oklahoma had opened on Broadway and sort of changed the pattern for everybody to follow. It marked a triumphal return to Broadway for Porter after a string of failed projects, including a movie that he wrote a song for, which you're also doing. By the way, a correction in your program. It's The Pirate, not A Pirate. A Pirate. It was a Gene Kelly film. With um, Judy Garland. With Judy Garland, directed Nicholas by Brothers. Vincent Minnelli and the Nicholas Brothers. Yeah. That's, it's a great number. He uh, had a few projects that were not really very successful. That one, Seven Lively Arts, another musical he did on Broadway with Burt Lahr, and Around the World in 80 Days, uh, written by, produced, directed, and starring the great Orson Welles, if you can believe it. Porter had to be talked into doing this adaptation of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, speaking of Kiss Me Kate again. Wunderbar was first composed in 1933 and attempted to use the tune in both Anything Goes and Jubilee, but neither of those really worked out and he was trying to use it under the title called Waltz Down the Aisle but it was eventually dropped from both shows and Porter recycles it for Kiss Me Kate here. Cole Porter was not necessarily always a happy man. I think you can hear in the music he was hugely unhappy and not comfortable with himself and not able to express things completely straightforwardly and in a simple straightforward manner manner. That is why, I mean, there, there are these two songs in Act One that happen late in the act that are just right there, right straight out, are so sort of rare. And, and Kathy gets to sing So In Love uh, from Kiss Me Kate. You can sort of hear the pain in the lyric in the, in, and, and, and in the arch of the melody, which in this case, as we discussed, her, the melody, it takes so long to say so little. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the voice of a tortured soul. A very much a tortured soul. I just think, like Lorenz Hart, in a way, there's just a little bit of pain underneath a lot of the stuff. 
and it and it's very very clear and I think that's why it connects with so many people subliminally in a very subtle way I I hope you hear it in all the Kiss Me Kate stuff because yeah. the Kiss Me Kate stuff we, we talked a little earlier in the week it's the one musical of his you can't take we open in Venice and throw it into Anything Goes it's so specific as Gary said Kiss Me Kate was written almost as his answer to Oklahoma an integrated musical. You can't take, oh, what a beautiful morning and toss that into South Pacific. Rodgers and Hammerstein were developing a very new specific pattern for musical theater writing. Cole Porter had to catch up, and he did. And he did so and scored in a huge way. You're ending the performance tonight with probably his greatest and well-known song, Night and Day. Uh, Night and Day is from a show called Gay Divorce in 1934. What it became famous was during the film The Gay Divorcee, a Fred Astaire vehicle with Ginger Rogers. Night and Day is the only song from the original show that's used in the film. And not unusual for Porter's Hollywood career at the time, the title had to be changed to placate the Hollywood censors. They were bete noirs to Porter throughout his career, and they could not concede that a divorce could be something joyous. Night and Day, some say perhaps the best song ever written by an American composer in the name of the Warner Brothers biopic from 1946, which you might have also seen, starring an unlikely Cary Grant as, as Cole Porter. Porter had a large anti-Puritan streak and was consistently in rebellion against social mores that he deemed out of date. You think this is particularly reflected in his lyrics. They're, they're wickedly sly in some way. I, I completely agree. Yes, they are wickedly sly. But there's something about night and day, you say that's his most probably well-known, is because, A, it's gloriously beautiful, and, and you could just listen to the melody and not even listen to the words, but when you listen to the pain of the words again... Only you beneath the moon and under the sun, whether that, near to me or far... That's someone with a deep longing that can't be expressed, and yet he does, and it, you can get wrapped up in that simple, beautiful melody and not even hear those... But there's a turnaround he does in night and day, that it didn't occur to me until this go-around of, of preparing this concert. It always ends, night and day, you are the one, da, 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 da. night and day, ends the phrase and begins the phrase. And then when it shifts up a, ma a minor third to the relative major, he goes day and night. Just a simple inversion of the words. Yeah. And you suddenly, it's the same damn two words oh, wow. and the same contraction, just reversed. And suddenly it feels different. Makes you sit up and take notice. Yeah, you, you, there's a journey. Some, there's, there's some sort of a journey there. So, sly, Simple, witty. Simple, brilliant, yeah. But brilliance. The sly, witty you'll hear in the patter songs, the subtle brilliance you're going to hear in those ballads. I, d I don't think I appreciated it really until I started working on this concert. I, I have a whole new appreciation. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm buying all his records from now on. <laughs> I know you have He's to get into He's going to be a your, big star. I yeah. know you have to get into your beaded gowns and tuxedos. Not you, beated, Kevin. Beaded gown. You're wearing a tuxedo? I, I want to leave you with this closing bit from Oscar-winning writer and co-author of the front page, Ben Hecht, who worked with Cole Porter on occasion. He said, old songs are more than tunes. They are little houses in which our hearts once lived. When we hear them, we go visiting. We walk forgotten streets. We smile again at the skies of youth. Well, I hope you all go out there and walk forgotten streets and smile tonight. Thank Have you for joining time, us folks. tonight. Thank you, Kevin. Thank, thank, you. thank you, Kathy. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. I want to thank my guests, musical director Kevin Stites, along with the lovely and very talented Miss Kathy Voidko and Mr. Ben Crawford for participating in that with me, and of course the Grant Park Music Festival for giving us the opportunity to talk about Mr. Cole Porter. We should move on to our closing Kiss of Death segment. I'm going to talk a little bit about Suli Herron Friedman today. Many recall her Wisconsin camp, Herond Camp of the Theater Arts in Elkhart Lake, as a magical summer place where they got to be stars for a night and gain confidence and friendships for a lifetime. Did you ever go to a theater camp, Roscoe, when you were young? Did your parents, were they into that kind of thing? I didn't either. I think that would have been so cool. I went to the YMCA camp in Niles, Michigan, which was the happiest two weeks of my life until my father forgot to pick me up one day, and I, <laughs> I sat on the stairs of the YMCA for three hours. Do you think, do you think he actually forgot? 
No. (laughs) (laughs) A charismatic actress and singer who was never without her red lipstick. She once aced a New York audition for uh, Guys and Dolls composer Frank Lesser. Uh, It doesn't uh, tell me what show she auditioned for, but she turned down his offer of a role to remain in the Midwest with her family. In 1955, she co-founded the Herond Camp, where she focused on singing, and her sister, Pearl Gaffin, concentrated on the acting. They gave the buildings names from the golden age of the American musical. Camelot, Brigadoon, South Pacific, Carousel. Suli's husband, Byron, was the business manager recruiting students in home visits he made across the Midwest. Pearl's husband, Sam, taught scuba diving, handled the books, and managed the kitchen. The drama teachers included Joyce and Byrne Piven, founders of Evanston's Piven Theater, and the parents of actor Jeremy Piven, and Lois Weisberg, who later was Chicago's Commissioner of Cultural Affairs. We profiled Lois Weisberg several months ago when, when, she, when she passed away. The last of the four camp founders, Miss Heron, uh, was 97, and she passed away at the Breakers at Edgewater Beach, oh. just up the street from here. On her deathbed, and I can only assume because of this sentence that maybe she didn't have all her full capacities when she passed, but on her deathbed, her niece, Janice Gaffin, told her that the Cubs had won the World Series. (laughs) (laughs) She was a fierce Cub fan, according to Gaffin, who said, I just thought maybe she would let go. In the Herod Camp's 1970s heyday, nearly 400 campers arrived each summer. Today, the family operates the camp in uh, Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, on, the, on the grounds there. Uh, one of her Haranders was Andrew Davis, director of The Fugitive, Holds, and Stony Island, among other movies. Davis said, I was still in touch with dear friends from my days as a scholarship camper washer, then counselor water ski instructor. I still relish playing Harry the Horse in Guys and Dolls. Another camp alum, Joseph Weisberg, son of Lois Weisberg, is the creator and writer-producer of TV's The Americans, very popular series. The camp's philosophy is no man is an island and everyone is a star. We may have to adopt that as our as our sort of catchphrase for no man is an island and every man is a star theater kids who dominated their school drama departments did not automatically grab the leads at Heron in any production multiple kids shared the same top role one Oklahoma might feature five lorries for instance shy awkward students got top billing often for the first time in their lives and everyone performed in the chorus Said former camp counselor Bruce Block, who produced the Steve Martin Father of the Bride films and other movies. A lot of famous people yeah. went up there to study and, and, and then went on to have terrific careers. Uh, the musical theater was the arena where every child was a star and the playing field was always completely level. I probably still wouldn't have been cast. Oh, I'm sure. You could have certainly been one of the lorries. <laughs> 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 Joyce Piven aforementioned, said she communicated in all that she did her joy of life, a joie de vivre that not only taught but inspired joy and confidence in people. At the camp, Laura Lippman, now a well-known author, twice portrayed the Statue of Liberty. I can't even even imagine what kind of show that was. This Baltimore writer produces acclaimed crime novels that feature tough, smart women. Lippman said, in the summer of 1976, she did her one-woman show, 1776. This is is Suli Friedman. And I was overwhelmed to see her full talent on display. I felt very sheepish that until that moment, I didn't really understand what she could do. Can you imagine doing a one-woman 1776? Is that really what she did? That's really what she did. Miss Heron's parents didn't have very much money, but they took their daughters to the opera and theater and arranged for drama, singing, and dancing lessons. Miss Heron attended the American Conservatory of Music, studied with Kurt Herbert Adler, who then went on to lead the San Francisco Opera. And she performed at Club Silhouette on Howard Street. Howard Street is the dividing street for our listeners that that divides Chicago proper from Evanston. It's just south of here. Not a particularly glamorous street. Not really. But apparently there was a club silhouette on Howard Street, and she developed a repertoire of 39 one-woman shows and musicals. (laughs) 
<laughs> the camp's philosophy of inclusion stemmed from the sisters' early days, according to friends. In the early 1960s, they welcomed African-American students, becoming one of the first private camps to be integrated. They weren't just teaching show tunes, said another former camper, Albert Williams, a senior lecturer at Columbia oh. College here in Chicago. They were teaching them the moral ethos behind the shows. And this goes back to what we were talking about, about a quintessential Chicago show. The sense of community, the sense of comradeship, that's an incredibly important element in Chicago theater. Another son of Lois Weisberg, Jacob Weisberg, said he continues to meet and bond with people who attended Heron Camp. Your whole life, you're running into people who went there at some point who have that connection. Was Wasn't that amazing, he said. It was also a very charmed place. People have tremendously fond memories of it. Well, Suli Heron Friedman passes at 97. Sounds like she had a wonderfully rich life and touched the lives of so many. It's like what Clarence the, uh, the Angel says in It's a Wonderful Life. Every life touches so many other lives. Well, she touched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lives. Well, that is our episode for today, uh, unless, Roscoe, you want to announce the start of your theater camp in the... I'm going to... Boy, I wish I had met her. I wish I'd known her. Maybe things would have been different. Maybe I, I would have been starring at the Goodman instead of sitting in the second row. It's not too late. It's, it's never too late. It's not too late. late, yeah. Review us on iTunes, everyone. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Email us at alist at booth-one.com. And if you go to our website at www.booth-one.com and sign up for our mailing list, we'll send you a free guide to creating your own Booth One experiences. Michelle, thanks for sitting in with us today. Thank you. We look forward to working with you and increasing um, our listenership and, uh, and its popularity in the next uh, coming months. I can barely keep up with my fan correspondence the way it is. I'm at a little bit of anxiety about this. Well, this is why we now have Michelle. I'll be like Joan Crawford in the back of my taxi cab signing headshots. Here, mail this. Here, mail this. We'll have to be very clear about who you take orders from because I'm sure I'm sure all of us will be sending you things saying, do this, write this, send me this, get me tickets. We got to get on the phone. Get me tickets. Get me tickets to yeah. things. Exciting. Well, for Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And I'm Roscoe. This saying, is spectacular. The thrilling. <laughs> Click. <laughs> Mic drop. Saying keep listening and so long until next time. 